if uh, the younger kids are uh, keeping track of how many words I say. No, I'm kidding. There'd be a lot of words. Um, but if they're looking for a word to count, uh, they can look for the word holy or holiness. Um, and that will be a recurring theme this uh, morning. Uh, and my wife, Melissa, in the front row has some treats for them as they keep track. It's good for us to think about Cornerstone Bible Church as an outpost of God's kingdom in Orange County. This is an outpost of God's kingdom in Orange County. Not this building, but we the people of Cornerstone Bible Church. It's not the only outpost of God's kingdom in Orange County. There are other groups of Christians who have committed to one another, living under what the Bible describes as a church. But we live in Orange County, at least many of us, but this is not our homeland. Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus is coming back for his people to bring us back to our eternal homeland, ultimately to be, to be with him. Now, we may live the, less of the rest of our lives in Orange County, Riverside County, or L.A. County, but our culture must be predominantly defined by the gospel and not by the county that we live in, not by the culture of our counties, not by the culture of our ethnicities, not by the culture of our families, not by the culture of our economic class. Culture is a way to think of what we value and how we express what is valuable to us. So what we value and how we express what's valuable to us. When God intervenes in our life, when he saves us through the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, we inherit a new culture. We have a whole new group of values and a whole new way of expressing the, those values. But that new culture has to be learned. It has to be cultivated. And we have to choose that new culture. In our current series on gospel culture, we've, we've seen that, that, that gospel culture, that being changed by Jesus Christ, by being reconciled to God, it's going to change the way that we live. And it makes us people who are needy people, who need God to rescue us and reconcile. It really begins with that, with neediness. It is a hopeful culture because we are confident of all people that God has power to change us. We are also confident people. We're confident because we've been reconciled to God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That changes the way that we live all of life. So it changes the way we see our, our failures and sins. It's a ministering culture where each of us seeks to use the gifts that God has given us in one another's lives. It's a family culture where we become brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a pleading culture where we plead with sinners to be reconciled to God. And today we're going to think about it being a holy culture. A holy culture. There's twice for the kids. As we talk about being, being a holy church, we have to define what holiness is. So we demonstrate that we value the gospel. We demonstrate that we understand the gospel as we seek and strive to be a holy church, a church that values holiness, that fosters holiness, that cherishes it, 
that doesn't shrink away from it. Doesn't find it as something kind of icky and out there that, well, I suppose we should, we should like it. See, holiness includes the idea of movement. Holiness includes the idea of movement from and movement toward. Movement from and movement toward. Holiness is movement from sin and movement toward God. It's departure from sin and devotion to God. It's rejection of sin and commitment to God. It's it's being most comfortable where God is and most uncomfortable where sin is. It has the idea of being devoted to God. God is holy. God's holiness is his being devoted to his glory. It's, It's his total devotion to his glory, and that's right, because there is nothing more valuable in the universe than God himself. So for him to value anything more than himself, it would be really for him to be unholy. So God's holiness is his total devotion to his glory. But it is also his repulsion to sin is that he hates sin because sin is an offense of his glory. Sin is that which dishonors him, that brings shame, that brings shame to him. And so God rejects sin. He despises sin. So as we think about God's holiness, his devotion to his glory and his rejection of that which brings him shame, the holiness of God's people, we are to be holy as well. And that holiness is our uncompromising devotion to God. So our being totally in for God, our our wanting to be with him where he is, wanting to bring nothing into his presence that he hates. So it's the rejection of that which God opposes and our commitment to God, our devotion to him, our movement to God in his glory. And as we move towards him, it's a rejection of everything that is far away from God. So it's a continuous movement, devotion to God and departure from sin. As God's people, we ought to have a concern about what pleases the Lord. We ought to cling to what he approves of, to love what he loves, to delight in what he delights in, to take as our own what is appropriate to his presence. And we should also scorn and despise what God hates, what he disdains and what he forbids in his presence. So, so, so what, is, what is displeasing to God, we should be like, oh. And what's delightful to God, we should run towards. Now, as we talk here, we have to make a clarification about what it means to be a holy church. What does it mean to be a holy church? Because scripture's clear, we are already a holy church. So now it's time to close our Bibles and leave. No, no. But scripture's clear, we are already a holy church. See, when we believe the gospel, this good news that we can be reconciled to God, when we turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become holy in Christ. God declares us righteous as as having obeyed him perfectly, even though we know we haven't. We are welcomed into God's presence as if we are holy because he's made us holy. We are, and the Bible calls us saints. Now, if you have a Catholic background, that may sound strange to you. A saint, well, those are holy people. That's what God's word calls us, saints, holy ones. 
1 Corinthians 1.30, and, and, and if you've read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you know it was written to people who struggled with holiness. But listen how Paul begins that, that letter in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, Jesus became to us, wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification. That's holiness. It has the same basic root idea, that root word there. We become holiness in God. We're welcomed in his presence. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Again, that word sanctification has a root of holiness. Sanctification by the Spirit. He's made you holy. And he's chosen you for belief in, in, in the truth. If you have become a new creature in Christ, if God has given new life to you, you can't lose your positional holiness. In Christ, you will always be holy. So that's the why. So you might be like, okay, great. We're already there. We're already a holy church. Well, we are already a holy church, and we will be a holy church. That also is guaranteed for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus Christ returns, we will be transformed to become as holy as he is, to become what we are in him in heaven. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When we see Jesus, we're made to be like Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 is such a sweet verse. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we see Christ, we are transformed to become like Christ. And, and whatever is left in our sinful flesh, whatever those, those dead desires are, that, that we still find sin appealing, we find it tempting to gossip or whatever the sin is, we'll be gone forever. And we'll have the same disregard and rejection of that sin as God does. For eternity, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, who he loved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And everyone that God places his electing love upon will be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So when Christ returns, our devotion to the Father's glory will be as perfect as Christ's own devotion to the Father's glory. And our rejection of sin will be as perfect as Christ's own rejection of sin. We will be like him and our every eternal movement will only be towards the Father. There won't be anything in us that would want us to deter for even a second to look at something that God hates. Isn't that wonderful? But now, so we know what we are and we know what we will be, so we are between the already and the not yet. And so what are we to be now? We know who we are. We know what we will be. We are to be a holy church. This was God's call to Israel in the Old Testament. Leviticus 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. But that language is transferred by Peter to the New Testament church. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We are not just to be holy because we already are holy. We are to be holy because we are already holy. So it's not just that God's already done it, so we don't work at it. We are to be holy as he is holy. So if you are in Christ, 
If you have been united to Christ through faith, you are holy before God. That is amazing. You are in him. You are, you are in God's presence. If you are in Christ, you are guaranteed that you will be holy at Christ's return. And if you are in Christ, you are commanded to be holy now. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 is from, is from today's passage. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or to bring holiness to completion. If you were with us last week, you heard how the Apostle Paul was forced to defend his ministry to, 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 to the Corinthian church. It's a church, as we saw, and that is why, why, why I wanted our brother Hyun to read verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6, and verses seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, which kind of sandwiched the section on holiness, because we see how much he loved this church. It's a church that he has suffered much for, had much anguish over. It was a church that struggled to embrace gospel culture. Corinth was a city that was seduced by pleasure and achievement and popularity. And the Corinthians had become kind of persuaded away from Paul and persuaded to these so-called super apostles, better than Paul apostles. In 2 Corinthians 11.4, Paul says, If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we, we proclaim, if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus, you should run. But if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the, one, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You guys are so accepting of these super apostles. They come with a different gospel, and you're like, hey, this, this is interesting too. Or 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, Paul just calls them what they are. Such men are false apostles, false apostles deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants, these false apostles, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. But the Corinthians were listening to these false apostles. They've been so influenced by them that they questioned Paul's motives. They critiqued his methods. They criticize his manners. They even, they even question whether Paul was, was competent in, in his ministry. Now, this wasn't a matter of kind of like Paul being, being personally slighted and he just wasn't in the corner crying because people didn't like him. The, 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 the Corinthians, Paul says that they sought proof that Christ was speaking in Paul and he's the one who brought the gospel to them. He had been appointed by Christ as the apostle, the messenger to the Gentiles. So rejecting God's apostle Paul, it wasn't a matter of personal slight and offense. It was about rejecting God's word. It would be like throwing away scripture, just tossing it into the garbage bin. The gospel was at stake. Now, Paul's heart was wide open to them. But Paul says, and, and he hadn't read this, they were restricted in their affections towards him. They were holding him at a distance, like, ah, Paul, you know... Yeah, he told us the gospel. There's all this other stuff he left out. And he, it, was, it was all about suffering and you know, kind of, he was kind of weak and 
isn't there a better way? So in 2 Corinthians chapters 2 through 7, Paul has to do something that in himself he doesn't really want to do. He has to defend his apostolic ministry, his being sent by God, to prevent the Corinthians from leaving the true gospel because there was no other good news for them. It wasn't like it was okay if they followed the false apostles. So in chapter 6, verses 14 through 7-1, and we already kind of saw it sandwiched by him just opening his heart to them. He's like, I love you guys, and you've got to love me back here. But sandwiched in between them, instead of defending his ministry, Paul calls the Corinthians to holiness. And that's really interesting. He, he warns them about influences and who they're aligning themselves with. For the Corinthians back then, 2,000 years ago, but for us today too, a right relationship to God's word requires that we be a holy church. A right relationship to God's word requires that we be a holy church. If you're not holy, the evidence of 2 Corinthians is, is that you will restrict your affections towards God's word. And you've seen that in your life probably often. I know I have. The more we fill our lives with what is wicked and wrong, the more our hearts drift towards what is unholy, the less room we have in them for God's word. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, verse 1, we see God's command to be holy. And we see that in both verse 6, 14 and 7, 1. And between those, those two commands to be holy, we're going to see a lot of reasons. And really, they are thrilling reasons. It's not just because you might fall away. Beautiful promises. So let's uh, get looking at it. So first we, we, we see the command to reject union with, 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 un, with unbelievers. The command to reject union with, un, with unbelievers. In chapter 6, verse 14a. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers with unbelievers. I'm gonna, hopefully I don't start on that every time. Now, that word for, 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 being, for being unequally yoked in 6.14, it's not totally sure if Paul has in mind Leviticus 19.19, 19, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind, or in Deuteronomy 22.10, it's kind of a more similar theme, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. But for us, uh, th that that illustration doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it's simple enough. Uh, you, you, different species of animals need different yokes, right? A yoke is laid across the necks of the animals to carry a plow. And you may just say, uh, you can't put a uh, engine from a Ford truck into your Camry, right? You, you, you can't be, be unequally yoked. You can't successfully yoke together a ox and a donkey. So Paul's command is don't enter into one of these yoking relationships with someone who doesn't know Christ. Now, this, this, this word un, uh, unbeliever is used many times in 1 Corinthians for those who are not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's those who aren't ready yet to be baptized because they aren't confessing Christ. They aren't committed to Christ. They, 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 aren't, they aren't participating in the Lord's Supper because they're not Christians. They're outside of the community of saints. It's not that they're not welcome to come and hear God's word preached, but they haven't yet repented of their sin. 
Now, now, how a unbeliever is responding to the gospel, it may vary wildly. They may be very open and, and very interested. They may be ambivalent to it, like, well, that's fine, you do your thing. Or maybe they are hostile to it. That, that is not the distinction that Paul is making. What's Paul saying about these, these unbelievers is that Jesus is not their Lord. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul describes them. He, he describes uh, those who are not yet right with the Lord. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They don't yet cherish who Jesus Christ is. They haven't yet run to him because they see him as the only one who can save them. Their lives are not yet right. Now, when Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with, un with unbelievers, Paul doesn't mean not to have no contact with them. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul says, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. He's not talking about our associations and those that we know or, or, or even those who we're living life with. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of, of sexual immorality or greedy or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. We're going to treat differently those who say that they are a, a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are part of God's people. We're going to treat them differently if they choose to willfully go after other sins. The Bible says that we need to go through a process of church discipline with them. But that's what Paul's not talking. Uh, uh, so, so he's not saying that we should have no contact with him. Instead, in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 27, Paul says about those who are not saved, if, if, if one of, of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you're disposed to go, you want to go eat. So, so, so you can spend time with people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 7, 13 even, where, where this describes a, 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 a couple where a woman gets saved and also describes a, 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 a couple where a man gets saved, but the spouse doesn't. And it says, if any woman has a husband who, who is an, un, an, an unbeliever, excuse me, guys, and he consents to, to live with her, she should not divorce him. So even there, even inside marriage, now that's different from marrying someone who doesn't know the Lord, but if someone gets saved... Uh, and then they are married then to a spouse who doesn't know the, the Lord. Paul says, you don't have to leave them. Okay? So this is just showing that, that, that not being unequally yoked doesn't mean that you don't have any association or friendships with those who don't know the Lord. So what does Paul mean? In the verses that follow, Paul uses language that would remind the Corinthians of his argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 10 that they must not participate in idolatry. In Corinth, worshiping many gods was socially acceptable. And I'm just going to kind of, you know, it's kind of what the weekends are for. Well, which idols are you going to go worship? Which, which party at a temple are you going to? Participating in feasts at idol temples, it was a mean of being socially relevant, of being 
a successful person, of being a socially mobile person. Rejecting idolatry in Corinth was social suicide. But in 2 Corinthians, physical idolatry doesn't seem to be the pressing problem. So it seems like they may have repented of it. Now, there are still other sins they, they were struggling with, and that's one of the reasons why we think that they may have repented of going to idol temples. Now, we can't be, 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 be certain, and you can make a, a compelling case for, 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 for both, but it would seem from reading 2 Corinthians that they had stopped going and worshiping at the idolatrous temples. So it's not just that, right? It's not just, oh, you should not go and worship idols. And we definitely see that in this context here. The context here, the biggest danger that Paul's been talking about has been false apostles. It's been their influence. It's been about leaving the true gospel for this, this simpler, more comfortable more promising gospel of these false apostles. Paul's focus in being unequally yoked with, un, with unbelievers is joining yourself with those who have a different Lord. One commentator writes, it's alliances with spiritual opposites. Alliances with spiritual opposites. Going in. Joining yourself with someone who is not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can really talk about how we should apply this passage. And a lot of wisdom is needed. We could ask if it deals with, with romantic relationships, with marriage, best friends, business partners, where you're employed, what entertainment you watch, whether you're on social media or how you use it. What music you listen to? Do you play on a sports team? What hobbies do you participate in? What school choices do you make? Should you join the military even? All of those have a, a, a level of participation with, with those who don't know the Lord. What it means to be unequally yoked is to partner with, to ally yourself with, to make allegiances with, don't yoke yourself with those who serve a different Lord. So what I'm not going to do is answer all those questions. But here's a good question to ask yourself. Will this relationship draw me away from Jesus Christ? Will this relationship draw me away from Jesus Christ? Or maybe am I currently being drawn away? It may even not be a person present. It may just be your, your allegiance to a certain band you like listening to. Will I be drawn away from Christ? Am I being drawn away from Christ? But Scripture also teaches that, that, uh, that in our flesh, the part of us that is not yet redeemed, our hearts are deceitful. Now, not our new nature in Christ, that is not deceitful, but our our, our old flesh influences us. So ask that question to yourself, but please ask that question to others. Kids, ask your parents. Brothers and sisters, ask one another. Please ask your pastors and elders. 
Do you think my heart could be drawn away from Christ? Do you think my heart is being drawn away from Christ now? I have yet to see an example of someone who is dating someone who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose heart is not drawn away from Christ, much less marry them. Now, that's just one example. We, we could talk about all of these, though. For some of you, your entertainment choices could be drawing you away from Christ. So it's, it's too complex to ask, really. There's a lot of, but what about? Right? But, but, but what about this job? Or what about this, Paul? Or, or I've, got, I've got, well, what about that, the funeral I'm supposed to go to at the temple of, of Artemis? Excuse me. What, what, what about, so there's a lot about what abouts. But instead, Paul answers in a very different way. But why would you? Right? His answer really isn't like a case study of all the potentials. He goes bigger. But why would you? And so he begins reasoning with them of the incompatibility of those whose Lord is Jesus Christ to those who have a different Lord. And he asked a, a series, and this is in verses 14 to, to, to 16, he first argues, he reasons from, 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 from incompatibility. It's a series of five rhetorical questions. And the answer to each of these questions is going to be an obvious none. It, it's a common sense approach. It is impossible. So first question in the middle of verse 14. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we learned about this last week. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He took the place of our sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. God has declared us righteous and then we should be living out that righteousness. Righteousness conforms to God's word, delights in doing so runs towards God's law. Lawlessness lives as if there is no lawgiver. Righteousness and lawlessness can't partner. Now, maybe that makes a good premise for some kind of TV movie, right? And you can imagine the righteous guy and the lawless guy, and they join up to, I don't know, do, save the world or something. But righteousness and lawlessness can't partner. It is a no-brainer. Second question at the end of verse 14. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And fellowship here is a synonym of partnership. In a Greek dictionary, there's this word fellowship. It's the closest association involving mutual interest and sharing. Light is a well-developed metaphor in Scripture for, for living in submission to the true God. And darkness is rebellion and lies. Ephesians 5.8, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. What fellowship is light with darkness? None at all. It's a no-brainer. Third, beginning of verse 15, here's the third question. Or what accord has Christ with, be, with Belial? And Belial there is another name for Satan. Accord, it's an alliance or, or mutual agreement. The, it's a Greek word from which we get uh, uh, our, our English word symphony. Jesus is not going to play in the same symphony as Satan. Satan is committed to dethroning God and exalting self. Christ exalts God and has been enthroned as Lord. Each person is either for Christ or for Satan. They have no accord. They are not in symphony. 
Fourth question is the end of, of verse 15. Or what portion does a believer share with an, an, un, an, an, an unbeliever? So some of you know that I stutter. I'm probably going, going to get pronunciation lessons later here. Uh, portion and share represent one word in, in, in the Greek. It is your inheritance. That word was often used to refer to a portion of the promised land that would be given to a family as, the, as, as, their, as their inheritance. Believers and unbelievers do not have a common inheritance. They will inherit land in different kingdoms. One is entrapped, is, is entrapped and ensnared in the domain of darkness. The other has been rescued to the kingdom of his beloved son. What portion does a believer share with, a, with an unbeliever? None at all. Fifth question, beginning of verse 16. What agreement has a temple of God with idols? God's temple and idols have no common ground upon which to agree. They can't make a pact. There will be no alliance. There's no joining together for a common cause. There's no joint faith services. In Corinth, idolatry was part of the past that they repented of. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. You know when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. They're dead idols. They didn't speak. Or Galatians 4, verse 8. Paul writes to the church, uh, the, the church there. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not gods. You used to serve, you were enslaved to false gods. 1 Thessalonians 1 9 is, 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 is the testimony of the church in Thessalonica. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Temple, God's temple, has nothing to do with idolatry. Our worship cannot be an amalgam between God's temple and the gods of, the, of this world. That We know that can't happen in public, but it can't happen in our hearts either. Paul's argument is that a believer being yoked together with an unbeliever is impossible. Their morals are at odds. Their nature as light and darkness is incompatible. Their lords as Christ and Satan are completely opposite. Their inheritance is in different, is in different domains. Their, work, their worship is irreconcilable. What God has separated, let no man join together. Don't attempt the impossible. So bring that to bear with the question of, oh, but can I? Right? So that's reasons from, from, from incompatibility. Here's reasons from our identity. Reason from identity in verse 616, the next phrase. For we are the temple of the living God. Paul says living God here to contrast to mute and deaf idols. The true church, and this is incredible. I don't say this proudly. The true church is the only place on earth where the true God is worshipped. And by true church, I mean the universal church, all those who have God's spirit in them. In all the world, that is the only place where God is worshipped. There are no worshippers of God who are not part of the body of Christ. Not a single one. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he, he, he talks about the saints as a whole. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That is true of us who are in Jesus Christ. We are his temple. We are we, where he's worshipped. Not this building. We go outside and that's where he's worshipped. And we meet in homes and that is where he's worshipped. But also 
as individuals too in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. God dwells in our midst through his spirit. We are aware God is worshiped. What a privilege. But in God's temple, God must be exclusively worshiped. We must not be like, like, like King Manasseh in ancient Israel who set up idols in God's temple. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. This is 2 Kings 21, verses 4 through 5. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Come and worship Yahweh and worship some stars while you're here too. Or see the golden calf to bow. Right? We know that that is repulsive, but sometimes we dally with that in our hearts when we are unequally yoked. Exodus 20, verse 3 says, When the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Not me and another god, no other gods. Deuteronomy 6, verses 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. You are to be for him only. Or Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Joshua challenging the, the Israelites, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell, where, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the gods of Orange County, the gods of L.A. County, the gods of Riverside County, or the God of the Bible, the one true God? 1 Kings 18 to 21, Elijah says to the people, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people sat there quietly. Jesus, Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He doesn't say Baal there. He doesn't say Ashtra. He says money. The promise of the new covenant, what God does in our hearts through the, our reception to the gospel is his spirit works in us, giving us new life. We respond in faith and put our hope in Christ, united to him. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That is why God saved you, saints, to cleanse you from all your idols. Saints, that's what, holy ones, you are God's temple. Are you setting up altars to other gods in your temple? Success, popularity, acceptance, relationship, honor, comfort, security, pleasure, stability. Are you serving them? Are you sacrificing for them? You must not yoke yourself to the world because you are God's temple. Paul continues. He's going to give more reasons. As God said, and this is a thrilling string here of him putting together a bunch of Old Testament quote, quote, quotations. And I can just imagine Paul excitedly here. 
He, he, he grabs a little bit from, from Leviticus and a little bit from, from Isaiah and a little bit from Ezekiel. And, and he throws them all together because his mind is popping with this incredible privilege that we have. And that, that is what is next. We see reason from Scripture. Reason from Scripture. As God said. And so what follows is a combination of several Old Testament references. And Paul puts these together here so that we could see this this unique privilege we as Gentiles who've been brought into Christ have of inheriting promises made to Israel. Uh, he, he, He begins at the end of verse 16 with this privilege of a relationship with God. I will make my dwelling among them. And walk among them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. What a privilege. We had none of that. God could have left us for all eternity outside. Shaking our fists at him. But he chooses to work in our hearts so that we become his people. This is is a quote from Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, at least in part. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. There's so many Old Testament passages that reference God's willingness to dwell with sinful people as he cleanses them and makes them his people. He doesn't dwell with them without changing them. He dwells with them as he changes them. God didn't choose you because you were desirable. It wasn't because you were so good and so valuable. That is true of Israel, and that's true of our souls that loved ourselves. God chose to be your God because he put his affection upon you and he loved you. It's a privilege, that relationship with God. It's a privilege, though, we see in verse 17 that comes with responsibility. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6.17. Therefore, go out from their midst, And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. It is a quote from Isaiah 52, verse 11, and I'll read it here. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of of the Lord. And there in context in Isaiah, it's God promising salvation to, 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 to Israel. And then calling them out of Babylon, particularly the priest, to bring um, the, the, uh, the vessels and plates that had been used in, in, in the temple, been carried away to Babylon. Now that God has saved you, saying, bring those out, purify yourselves, come and bring what is holy to God. The priests dedicated to God's service were to stay clean to touch no unclean thing, to be separate from them, leave Babylon. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to leave Orange County or leave L.A. County, right? It doesn't mean that we need to leave our location, but in our hearts, because we are part of a new kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. We are to be different. We are to be pure. God's people are to be devoted to purity, a kingdom of priests. Peter uses the same language in 1 Peter 2, 9. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, 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 his own, for his own possession. God has rescued and redeemed people for himself to be holy and to be pure. And that's the responsibility that he says to them, come out, be pure, be clean. We see the privilege of that relationship with God, the responsibility, and then we see a promise He says at the end of verse 17, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Again, 
Paul is quoting, just bringing in, in Old Testament quotes, and this one's fascinating. He quotes from 2 Samuel 7.14. This is God's promise to David's descendants. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So this promise here is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that he is the descendant of David who has God's forever throne. But this promise is applied to his people. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. And that's what happens when we are connected to Christ through faith. We are adopted as his sons and daughters in Jesus. And it's the Lord Almighty who does this. This is, this, this is the only time Paul uses that phrase, the Lord Almighty, and it emphasizes God's power to keep his promises. As we just skim these verses, God's dwelling with us. He's our God, called to be separate. He welcomes us into his presence, a father to us, and then he promises he's going to do this as the Lord Almighty. And there we see that we are between promises. God has kept his promises to us in Christ. He is our God. We are his people. We have been adopted. God will keep his promises to us. He will ultimately welcome us as his sons and daughters. But now those who are in Christ have the responsibility of responding to this privilege and to these promises with purity, to touch no unclean thing, to not be, to not be unequally yoked, so maybe we try to, to, to justify ourselves. You know, well, I'm not really yoking myself to someone. I'm not, I'm not really yoking myself to that, to that person who doesn't know the Lord. But Paul pushes further. And he, and he, he even kind of goes broader with the command next. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, all of those promises... Adoption into God's family, forever welcomed into his presence, being his dwelling place. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Paul is full of affection for his beloved. And he summarizes with a command that any Christian has to take seriously, including the apostle Paul himself. He just doesn't say, you all need to get your acts cleaned up, right? He says, let us cleanse ourselves. We all need to do this. He extends it. It's not just kind of being, 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 being unequally yoked. We say, well, I'm not doing that. He says, from every defilement of body and spirit, Body and spirit, it's just, it's just shorthand of the totality of who we are, physical and spiritual beings. And every defilement, it, that, that, that word refers to impurity or what contaminates. It, 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 it'd be like worshiping at the altar of another God and then coming to worship God. Well, no, you can't come here. You're, you're, you're defiled. You're, you're, you're morally impure. Defilement, it is what God forbids. It's what falls short of his righteousness, what is morally deformed. Really, anything that doesn't match up with his laws, his commands. People love buying bottled water. How much defilement do you want in your bottled water? Right? I mean, if you saw on there 2% defiled, would you be okay with just 2%? Probably not 5% or 10%. I 
mean, really, you'd be probably uncomfortable if it said, you know, 1% defiled. Right? We want pure drinking water. That's nothing compared to God's presence. Paul calls us to cleanse ourselves of anything that would be unwelcome and inappropriate in God's presence. What are we watching? What are we listening to? What are we speaking? What are we daydreaming about? What are we lusting after? What are we boasting in? What are we believing about God or ourselves or this world that isn't true? What lies are lingering in our minds? Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Are you eager to be free of contamination? Are you eager to be free? I want to be as clean as possible. Or, you know, like, I'm okay with 5%, you know, as long as it's just a little defiled. Do we welcome it? Paul motivates the, the, the believer to cleanse themselves in three ways in this verse. We'll just look at them quickly. He began, we've already talked about this, since we have these promises, he looks back. It's motivation from God's promises. Because of what God has done, because of what God will do, we've already received so much. We're already guaranteed so much. We're almost there. The time for choosing cleansing is limited. We're between the already and not yet. Our lives are short here. We're going to be eternally holy. This time is his time, bought with Jesus' blood. Because we know that God dwells with us, because we will spend eternity conformed to his likeness as his children, we are to cleanse ourselves now. It's being motivated from his promises. There's also motivation from God's purpose. And here's the purpose, bringing holiness to completion. God has already made us holy. We looked at it. He set us apart. He calls us saints. He sanctified us in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. So it's to bring that holiness to completion. Bring it to its intended goal. He sanctified us. He made us holy. So be holy. Now, sometimes it is translated perfect here. Bring it to completion, I think, captures that idea better. Perfecting holiness is like, oh, man, I'm going uh, to get to 100% now. Well, that's a great ambition for our heart, but we know that we're not going to achieve it in this life while we still have the sinful effects of the flesh. We aim to bring to completion what he's done. We bring, aim to bring evidence in our lives what's real. If holiness is our new nature, we must bear fruit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And if you are here unrighteous this morning, that is not the end of the story for you if you turn to Jesus Christ. You can be saved. You can put your hope in him. You can repent from your sins and say, I need Jesus Christ's death and resurrection in my place. You can be sanctified. But Paul says, do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has done that to you, so be what you are. 
Bring holiness to completion. Be who you are, be who you will be. Don't be content with like 60%, 80%, 90%. That's motivation from God's purpose. And last is motivation from, from God's presence. He says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are motivated to maximize our holiness in the fear of God. We know what God has given us. The privilege of becoming holy when once we, we couldn't stand our own dirtiness, our own defilement. The privilege of becoming his priest. Privilege of becoming his children. The privilege of becoming the temple in which his spirit dwells. We honor the Lord Almighty by being a place that he, he delights to dwell. As we seek to please him, a place where he's at home, where he's comfortable. How would have you felt this morning if you had come and there was statues of Hindu gods here? Statues of Mary, statue of Buddha. You'd be appalled. And rightly so. Maybe you would even feel frightened. What are they doing? Have they lost their minds? You might fear actual lightning bolts. Do we fear the Lord more about what we do with this brick building than what we do with our lives? Because God's spirit doesn't dwell in this building. He dwells in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what's due for what he's done in the body, whether good or, 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 or evil. We know for those of us that God is sanctified, there is going to be reward, there's no condemnation. But are we eager to bring as much pleasure to him as possible? Again, we would not set up any of those statues here. What do we do with the temple of our lives? Whether in Corinth it was participating in idolatry, whether it was partnering with false apostles, Paul gives the same commands. Don't yoke yourselves to, 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 un, to unbelievers. Cleanse yourselves from every defilement. We value God's promises, saints. If you are in Christ Jesus, I know you value these promises. So will we cultivate his purity? What kind of temple will we be? What kind of temple will you be? Will we be a holy church? Let's pray. Father, we are no better than any without Christ. We didn't deserve to ever hear the gospel. We didn't deserve Jesus to take the punishment of our sins. We didn't deserve you to send your spirit to awaken our hearts so that we would respond in faith. We didn't deserve to be unified with Christ so that his death was our death and his life is our life. We deserve none of that. But that is the great and precious promises that you have given us that you have dwelt with us as through your spirit, that we are your temple here on earth, that we have been adopted as your sons and daughters in Christ, that we have these great and precious promises. These promises to us are yes in Christ, and we know that when we see Jesus, we'll be transformed to be like him. Oh, help us, Father, not to take these promises for granted and live the way that we want. Lord, Paul is so clear that the righteous will not inherit your kingdom. 
Help us to be serious about, about becoming who we are. To be holy as you are holy. To run to what you run to and to spurn what you spurn. To be drawn increasingly towards you to love being in your presence and love all the things that you love. And rejecting everything that you hate. Everything for which Christ died. In Jesus' name, amen.